Chapter Two of Some American Storytellers by Frederick Tabor Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two, Kate Douglas Wiggin. Kate Douglas Wiggin is one of those rare and delightful spirits in modern literature who, by a certain quiet charm of their own, have freed themselves from most of the trammels of form and tradition to which more ordinary writers are subject who even in doing quite ordinary things do them in an extraordinary way who in all they do are in themselves their personality their attitudes toward life their own best excuse for so doing and who when they happen to fit in most appropriately to a particular scheme of things as for instance kate douglas wiggin herself fits into a volume upon american story-tellers do so with a unique appropriateness ordinarily the qualities or the demerits of a literary production are matters to be determined quite aside from an author's personality the place and hour of his or her birth the inches of his or her stature and all the other little details of a personal or domestic nature into which after our modern habit we are forever too closely inquiring in the present case however there are just a few facts that are worth putting briefly before us at the start in order to understand more clearly this particular author's sources of inspiration range of interests and limitations of experience that she was born in philadelphia that she lived throughout her girlhood in the midst of the peaceful beauty of rural new england that at the age of eighteen after her stepfather's failing health had made a removal to california imperative she joined her family at santa barbara immediately after her graduation from the abbott academy at andover that she has been twice married the second time to mr george c riggs in eighteen ninety five although she continues to use her earlier name as the signature of her literary productions that it was directly through her efforts that the first free kindergartens for poor children were organized in this country and that for the past twenty-five years she has been prominently associated in many an administrative capacity with important educational movements these facts concern us for our present purpose only to the extent to which they explain why her writings are what they are and why they could not well have been otherwise a single sentence will serve to make this clear kate douglas wiggin is at heart a romanticist whose romance is woven not from the stuff that dreams are made of but from the homespun threads of everyday life she has an exuberant and unquenchable spirit of optimism of the sort that bubbles up spontaneously at the most unlikely moments casting a dash of gold across her pages just at the point where the shadows seem to lie heaviest she reaches the heart and she appeals to the memory because she has in abundance this power of making very ordinary lives seem beautiful because she writes only of the life that she has seen and because from the first story that she wrote up to the most recent she has always preserved the clear directness of narration the unaffectedness of form that are the qualities inborn in any one who hopes to interest a youthful audience to hold bright eager little faces under the spell of a spoken tale a glance down the list of kate douglas wiggins writings in any one of her recent volumes reveals upward of a score of titles and these are exclusive of the educational books and the various collections of children's stories that she has compiled and edited in conjunction with her sister nora archibald smith it would seem at a glance that mrs wiggin had a rare fertility of imagination a wide range of interests and an unusual power of productiveness but a little closer examination shows that such variety and range as she achieves are produced from very simple and limited materials like melodies of much depth and tenderness played on only one or two strings the settings of her stories are of three types the california of her early memories based on those two years in santa barbara 
the rural new england of her entire girlhood which she has somewhat described as all the years that count most and the british isles which have given her probably because she came to them later in the full maturity of her receptive powers a broader horizon and a keener intellectual stimulus than either of her other settings she has said of herself that the more familiarity she has with the subject the less she desires to write about it because exact knowledge hampers one's imagination sometimes in this respect almost any one of mrs wiggins's admirers will take the liberty of telling her that she is in a measure mistaken it is only that saving sometimes at the tail end of the sentence that keeps her from being very far astray it is her perfect familiarity with the new england fields and woods the new england ways of speech and dress and thought the new england types of men and women and children the types of children above all things that is the golden key to the success of such books as timothy's quest and rebecca of sunnybrook farm nor has her familiarity with these subjects made her one whit the less eager to revert to them new england is her chosen field and she goes back to it again and again with no visible diminution of interest or power on the other hand it is quite easy to see how the stimulus of foreign scenes of the kind that produced the penelope series might grow dull as their familiarity increased the whole point to penelope's experiences as to mark twain's innocence abroad was the first sharp imprint of the unfamiliar the incisive force of contrast and of course each subsequent impression was bound to become less keen like the duller mintings of a coin as the dye begins to wear smooth details of this sort however will be seen more clearly when we come to take up her separate works for discussion for the moment let us consider frankly what her standards are as a writer of fiction what ideas she has of form and of technique what plan she seems to make for telling her stories and to what extent she succeeds in building them according to the accepted rules in this connection it seems worth while to quote a passage of reminiscences by her sister nora archibald smith giving a rather graphic glimpse of what sort of a child it was that was destined to grow into the woman who to this day has preserved such a rare insight into the hearts of the children both of real life and of her dreams the passage in question may have been widely circulated or it may not it may form part of a preface to some volume already in its many thousands or it may be an extract from a private letter in any case the present writer ran across it for the first time in a recent article by ashley gibson published in the london bookman Quote, my sister was certainly a capable little person at a tender age concocting delectable milk toast browning toothsome buckwheats and generally making a very good parent's assistant i have also visions of her toiling at patchwork and overseeing sheets like a nice old-fashioned little girl in a story-book further to illustrate her personality i think no one much in her company at any age could have failed to note an exceedingly lively tongue and a general air of executive ability if i am to be truthful i must say that i recall few indications of budding authorship save an engrossing diary kept for six months only and a devotion to reading her literary passions were the arabian nights scottish chiefs don quixote thaddeus of warsaw irving's mahomet thackeray snobs undine and the martyrs of spain these and others joined to an old green shakespeare and a plum-pudding edition of dickens were the chief of her diet for our immediate purpose the centre of interest in the above passage lies of course in the list of favourite books what a splendid stimulus they are one and all of them to the young imagination and how superbly defiant of the trammels of modern technique 
who in the world if his reading had been limited to these books even though they include such gems as the christmas carol and undine and the forty thieves would ever dream even remotely of the modern short story form with its insistence on unity of effect and economy of means and this is an excellent place at which to say that had no one seen fit to betray what kate douglas wiggins early reading included it would have been a safe venture to make up from pure conjecture very nearly the same sort of list in the case of an author who combines so many merits with so few defects there can be no harm in saying quite bluntly that however much or little she may know of the accepted rules of story structure she deliberately and blandly ignores them wherever she sees fit and to a critic who rates the importance of technique of form rather highly it is almost exasperating to find how frequently she justifies herself and by breaking the rules secures an effect that could not have been gained by adhering to them she seldom knows when she has reached the end of a story she almost always stops too soon or else not soon enough that is if you are judging her stories by the ordinary tests but that is precisely what nobody wants to do if she stops too soon no one ever thinks of saying to her this is inartistic and unfinished not at all they simply emulate oliver twist and cry for more if she fails to notice when the end of a story is reached and goes steadily onward with that unflagging power of invention that felicitous mimicry of human types that sparkle and sunshine of hope and faith no one would ever think of stopping her of saying you have gone beyond your goal you ought to have turned in at the gate they are only too glad that she forgot to turn in now all this is as it is for the very simple and sufficient reason that with kate douglas wiggin just as with a few other big-hearted clear-sighted writers whose purposes are very simple and few and worthy the substance is so vastly more important than the form or rather i ought to say than somebody else's dictum of what the form ought to be kate douglas wiggin is in a measure an anomaly in american letters being on the one hand so peculiarly native and even local that one feels it would be possible to pick out the particular habitation of her childhood simply by strolling through new england byways until one happened upon it and yet on the other so cosmopolitan that she has been frankly recognized in england by more than one critic as our leading writer of her sex with just one possible rival mrs wilkins freeman and while she has that high standard of good taste in letters that makes her next of kin to agnes replier is this by the way a mark of sisterhood due to her philadelphia birth she nevertheless has achieved that approval of democracy so conclusively and substantially attested by sales that reached the two hundred thousand mark now the easiest way to understand all this the easiest way to explain why her books are what they are and not something altogether different is to remember that before she was known as a writer she was a master hand at kindergarten work she knew how to hold the attention of children she knew the way which for her was the best the inevitable way to tell a story to children and all the stories that she has told and all the stories she has printed have owed their power and their charm to that pervading simplicity and sincerity and naive literalness that made her success as a teacher of children and it is precisely in the spirit of childhood that the public has received her books whether she writes of the simple-hearted rebecca or the cosmopolitan and sophisticated penelope there is the same clamorous demand for more a demand which like all good-natured story-tellers she does her best to gratify and because they are all imbued with a simple unaffected kindergarten spirit the public receives them with the uncritical mind of childhood 
closing its eyes to the fact that the further adventures of rebecca are not quite as good as the earlier and that the experiences of penelope in ireland and scotland lack something of the freshness of her first months in england how many times we have heard children clamouring for just one more story and the tired story-teller says doubtfully but i don't know any more stories i haven't any good ones left and the children answer we don't care tell us anything anything so long as it is a story and you tell it that in brief is the public's attitude toward kate douglas wiggin tacitly expressed by the popularity of each new book and after all an author can hardly have a higher order of praise than this public testimony that her worst is preferable to many other authors best the writings of kate douglas wiggin fall of their own accord into three classes one of which the purely educational written in collaboration such as freebold's gifts and kindergarten principles and practice does not concern us here the other two groups are first the bulk of her writings being stories dealing more or less directly with the life problems of children and so written that they appeal almost equally to the child reader and to the man or woman who has preserved even though pretty deeply buried some smouldering embers of the childhood spirit and secondly a group of books much harder to characterize because they are not on the one hand novels nor on the other can they fairly be called inspired guide-books and yet unless they are to be recognized as in some proportion a blending of these two there is no other existing classification for them the childhood stories begin as far back as eighteen eighty eight with the bird's christmas carol a simple tender whimsical christmas tale that has quite justly come to be already a sort of children's classic then followed in swift succession the story of patsy a summer in a canyon one of the few books due to her santa barbara memories and in eighteen ninety timothy's quest this volume is worth while pausing over for a moment not only because it is an excellent prototype of the bulk of mrs wiggins's works but because it helps us to see how limited in their variety are the threads with which she weaves and the patterns that she chooses to make timothy is a lad of ten or eleven foundling asylums are not over-accurate in their records lady gay his protege is an exceedingly pretty child of possibly eighteen months or more certain people have seen fit to pay periodic sums for the support of these two waifs to a bedraggled and drunken hag named flossie in a reeking slum known as minerva court for the simple reason that so far as the writer is aware this is the one time in all mrs wiggins's fiction where she has permitted herself to picture a slum it is worth while to quote briefly from her description of minerva court had she chosen to do so she might not ineffectively have rivalled the squalor and repulsiveness of arthur morrison's tales of mean streets quote, children carrying pitchers of beer were often to be seen hurrying to and fro on their miserable errand there were frowsy sleepy-looking women hanging out of their windows gossiping with their equally unkempt and haggard neighbours apathetic men sitting on the doorsteps in their shirt-sleeves smoking a dull dirty baby disporting itself in the gutter while the sound of a melancholy accordion the chosen instrument of poverty and misery floated from an upper chamber and added its discordant might to the general desolation the sidewalks had apparently never known the touch of a broom and the middle of the street looked more like an elongated junk-heap than anything else that was minerva court a little piece of your world my world god's world and the devil's lying peacefully fallow awaiting the services of some inspired home missionary society 
this paragraph is here set down chiefly for the sake of its contrast to all of mrs wiggins's later methods and ideals not that she has ever lost her interest in the swarming life of big cities the brilliant and the sordid alike to realize this one has only to read her account of market night in one of the penelope chapters entitled tuppenny travels in london yet in that very chapter she voices that prevailing spirit of her books which insistently iterates that in a world where there is so much sunshine it does not pay to look too closely into the shadows Quote, as to the dark alleys and tenements on the fringe of this glare and brilliant confusion this babble of sound and ant bed of moving life one can only surmise and pity and shudder close one's eyes and ears to it a little or one could never sleep for thinking of it yet not too tightly lest one sleep too soundly and forget altogether the seamy side of things but to go back to timothy's quest flossie the hag has died and the almshouse is the destined fate of timothy and lady gay but the instinct of chivalry and protection has awakened early in timothy and in obedience to this instinct he steals out into the night with the baby girl in his arms and laboriously doggedly fearlessly makes his way far from the city hour by hour mile after mile till a beautiful restful eminently safe country-house by the wayside appeals to him as the ideal spot where lady gay should find a home the mere fact that this farmhouse is presided over by two mature spinsters who have never before in their lives had children around them is not a matter to daunt a valiant soul like timothy's nor disconcert a heaven-sent story-teller like mrs wiggin and of course timothy triumphs gloriously in all his plans the point that it seems worth while to make just here is that in this book as in polly oliver's problem a little later and still again in both of the rebecca books the underlying motive the germ idea as one may call it is a sort of premature sense of responsibility possessed by just a few children an embryo foreshadowing of the father-love or mother-love which is to come later that makes the timothys and the pollys and the rebeccas of real life bend their fragile shoulders under burdens almost too heavy for their young strength it would not be within the scope of the present essay to speak at any great length of rebecca of sunnybrook farm it has received to be sure quite triumphantly the popular vote its central character is the one that already enjoys the widest acquaintanceship and now that she has come before the footlights she is destined to a new and still wider fame rebecca is probably the volume by which the author will be most frequently measured in literary analyses largely for the reason that it is the one by which she is most easily measured if we make due allowance for the change in manners and ideals from decade to decade rebecca of sunnybrook farm appeals to the readers of to-day for much the same reasons and with much the same right that miss alcott's little woman appealed to an earlier generation and elizabeth wetherill's wide wide world to a generation still more remote indeed if one shuts one's mind to the rather exasperating priggishness of that earlier period the ubiquitous praying and psalm-singing and reading of scriptures which in those days was an inseparable quality of all properly conducted little heroines there is a good deal in the advent of ellen montgomery to her aunt fortune's farm her sensitive shrinking from her aunt's rough ways and rougher tongue her haven of refuge in the slow-spoken slow-moving farmer mr van brunt and in general the whole atmosphere behind the story of new england farm life farm hardships and farm festivals there is it seems to me in all this a great deal of the same sort of appeal as that which the present generation finds in rebecca but of course there is one rather important distinction 
it was the habit in those days to look resignedly upon this world as a veil of tears to be passed through somehow as best one could while to kate douglas wiggin and to one and all of her heroines it is a supremely glorious thing just to be alive and to smell the flowers and see the sunshine and the author who can spread the contagion of such feeling among a few thousand of readers is a sort of inspired home missionary society in herself one would like to have the space to say a few pleasant things about rose o the river which is as tranquil and naive a little pastoral as a modern daphnis and chloe the old peabody pew is another slim little volume at least so far as its text goes it is the ambition of the illustrator which has necessitated the wide page and ample margin that tempts one to bestow upon it a disproportionate amount of notice just the fulfilment of a long-cherished dream the final blossoming of a hope that had almost withered in the heart of a new england girl now a girl no longer who had seen the bright years slip away one by one while she waited mutely patiently for the lover who had gone away to seek his fortune the lover who through all these years had sent no word and to all appearances had forgotten her it is a true christmas story bright with the spirit of hope and faith and love and what is more it is the best piece of fiction so far as pure structure goes that the author has ever put together the second and last group into which mrs wiggins stories divide themselves are those of the scenes of which are enacted in the british isles as already intimated they are of a more urbane more sophisticated type and appeal in consequence to a more special audience on both sides of the atlantic the first of the penelope books the one containing that delightfully independent and well-poised young woman's experiences in london and in rural england is easily the bright and shining gem of the collection the late mr lawrence hutton did not quite share this view to his enthusiastic appreciation any gradation of merit in the penelope books was not to be thought of her first course he once wrote served in england is as delicate and savoury as in her second course pervade in scotland while her third course now being dished up in ireland promises as well as did those which preceded it we can only hope before the symposium is brought to a close that she will regale us with whales as a salad and with the isle of man as a dessert now mr hutton's enthusiasm is easy not only to understand but to share those three volumes devoted to the confidential relations from the facile and diverting pen of miss penelope hazelton are surely to be numbered among that sadly small collection of modern volumes that people of real culture and intelligence find themselves from time to time reverting to for another and yet another perusal but to pronounce all three of them of equal merit is to proclaim one's own lack of discrimination it is the same sort of mental astigmatism as would prompt one to claim that there was no gradation of merit between the autocrat of the breakfast-table and its companion volumes devoted respectively to the professor and the poet as there is much to be said in the praise of the penelope books it is well to begin with what little there is to be said against them and to have it over with kate douglas wiggin it may be noted parenthetically never attempted a regularly constructed full-length novel penelope is her nearest approach to a regulation heroine and that simplicity of structural form that tendency to harp upon just one or two strings which pervades all her other works is equally in evidence here let us analyze quite briefly and without malice these three volumes which for convenience sake we may christen the trilogy of the rose the heather and the shamrock first in penelope's experiences in england we are introduced to that perennially delightful trio 
penelope herself and her two travelling companions francesca and salomina offering an infinite variety in feminine moods temperaments personal appearance and age whether regarded as a guide-book as a picaresco novel of the gentler sex as a summer idol or just as a miscellany of feminine cleverness the book is a delight but any one who wishes to epitomize the plot finds himself reduced to something like the following a young american woman charming but fancy-free finds it a pleasant summer's pastime to be made love to intermittently by a young man very much in earnest amid the picturesque surroundings of english byways and hedges churches and ruined castles then comes a weary interregnum during which the suitor is detained elsewhere a little loneliness teaches her what she ought to have known all the time and prepares her to give him the right sort of a welcome when he at last comes back to claim her the experiences in scotland simply shift the limelight from penelope to francesca a charming and unattached young woman finds it pleasant to be wooed amid the scotch heather by an earnest young minister of the established church but she too remains somewhat uncertain of her own mind until a few weeks separation gives him a chance to come and play the conquering hero the experiences in ireland are again the same tune in a new key with salomina as the light motif salomina is not exactly young though still undeniably charming and not strictly unattached because many years ago she loved an irishman who inconsiderately married someone else but is now a widower she in her turn finds it pleasurably romantic to be courted in a reserved middle-aged fashion amid the irish lakes the bogs of lisconnel and the glens of antrim she too finds a brief loneliness salutary and is quite prepared to signify a cordial assent just as soon as the irishman vouchsafes her a second chance such at least is the summary which an unfriendly critic might give if he felt in a carping mood there is a rather obvious duplication of plot running through these books which after all is a better and franker thing than an artificial attempt at variations when the author knows and the reader knows and the author knows that the reader knows that the plot is only a makeshift at best something to carry the real vital substance of the book and every bit as conventional as a blue muslin rose or a cigar store indian the real charm and magnetism of these penelope books depend of course upon their personal equation mrs wiggin chose for her purpose the freest most elastic vehicle that she could find for conveying her exceedingly subtle and equally frank observations of such points of difference as must inevitably strike the cultured and well-bred american visitor to the british isles that she has done this thing with rare tact is best evidenced by the fact that the english enjoy the cleverness of her attack quite as much as we do ourselves and that such a paper as the spectator genially remarks that she is the most successful ambassador that the united states has yet sent to england the penelope books are a part of the mental equipment that the american visitor to the british isles will do well to provide himself with upon his first visit in precisely the same way that on his first trip down the thames he will read jerome k jerome's three men in a boat or william black's strange adventures of a houseboat and on reaching florence or rome will wish to refresh his memory of romola or the marble faun and yet there is a certain inevitable compunction that follows even a suggestion that the romance of these penelope books is perfunctory one feels somehow that the author's eyes would follow one with a haunting disapproval because to her the world is obviously made up of romance she cannot help it she is so constituted and thank heaven that she is 
because there are so lamentably few writers to-day in whom sunshine and bright hopefulness and the joy of living are incarnated and among these kate douglas wiggin holds a privileged place End of chapter two